I wanted to make this, uh, Pastor Justin, I wanted me to make this, you know, just centered a little bit on, on some leadership concepts uh, because you're the ones that volunteer in various aspects of the church. And um, it's not enough to serve the Lord. It's you have to do it right. Amen. God is not as concerned with what you do for him as much as he's concerned with who you are. Are we okay? Because God can do anything for himself. He doesn't need your help. But he's concerned with who you are as a person as you do the things you do. Amen. I know that we are people that love the Lord and we want to invest ourselves in the work of the Lord. To do it with the right heart is the most important thing you can ever do. Amen. And, um, and I want to begin this by looking at the day that the Lord chose a leader in Israel. And we're going to find this in 1 Samuel, all the way in chapter 16. Again, to the church leadership, thank you for inviting me this weekend. I am honored to be here. Thank you, Father. And in fact, before we go to that, I, I, I want to go to chapter 13, rather. First Samuel chapter 13. I want to point out some... Yeah, thanks, bro. Perfect. So I can come to this side a little bit. You all for sitting in one side. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. I, 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 was, I was preaching at the citywide meeting in, in Dallas. I think it was PYCD years ago. I'm going back, I don't know, seven, maybe eight years ago. And we were in the Eisner Center. And the Eisner Center does not have a split in the middle. They have one section in the middle and then a section to the side and a section to the left and to the right. So I wanted to see how people were going to react, you know, because of the way our sitting arrangement, women on one side, men on one side. So I watched to see what was going to happen. And you know what? All the sisters arrived, and they went to the far corner. And all the brothers arrived, and they went to the far corner. And I had a place that could seat several hundreds in front of me, and it was empty. Nobody was sitting there. They, they literally split into two sides of the building. And I had to ask them, listen, can you stop that? God will not be offended if you guys sit together. Amen. <laughs> God is okay with that. So I'm glad that we can all sit in one section. It's, uh, it's important. Everything is through. Well, anyway, you know, so we're looking at, um, at uh, 1 Samuel chapter 13. And uh, let me give you a back story of what happened. In this particular instance, when we go to 1 Samuel chapter 11, the Lord chose Saul to be king in Israel. Saul was a young man who was a choice son of a, name, a man named Kish of the tribe of Benjamin. Saul was chosen by God because Israel had asked the Lord, give us a leader like all the other nations. So the people had asked for a specific leader. What must this leader be like? I just gave you the answer. Give us a king like the other nations. Because a lot of people don't know why the Lord chose the tallest man in the land. 
we know he chose the tallest man in the land because when Joshua, when Moses had sent spies on the other side to scout the land of promise, they came back with a report that told us about the stature of the men in the land of Canaan. They were what? Men of great stature, meaning they were tall individuals. They looked grand. They, you know, it was a land that the Bible says was full of giants. It means that there were people that were, that's why when the people asked the Lord, give us a king like the other nations, the Lord used the same system that the other nations used to choose a king. He found the tallest man. Saul was not just taller. He was a head above everyone else. It was like choosing Shaq to be, to be king, right? Um, or, or, or Dirk, sorry. Amen. Where he's taller than everybody else, so that was a qualifying, um, you know, his stature qualified him to be king. Because the kings, the people of the land, the Israelites, wanted a king like all the other kings in the land to go before them to march in battle. So they chose the strongest, tallest guy they could find. But now it had come time where this young man, after he became king, then um, the Lord had, had, had asked him to do something. The man of God, Samuel, said to Saul, he says, I want you to wait for me. And I'm going to come and join you after several days. And I will make a sacrifice together with you. But wait until I get there. Saul had just won a battle against uh, an army that had marched against a, a region called Jabesh Gilead. He went in there. The anointing of God was upon him. He performed a mighty victory in battle. So now he was very, feeling very good about himself. But the men of God had told him, I want you to wait. I will be there after several days. Wait until I get there and you and I shall make an offering together. But Prophet Samuel was saying, I will make the offering. Well, Saul waited. And it looked like Samuel was not coming. And he waited. And it looked like Samuel was not coming. Then he noticed that the camp of Israel, some people will begin to uh, go to their own homes. Ah, we've been waiting. This man of God is late. Because he's late, we're just going to go home. So because Saul was so concerned about how people felt about him, he was very concerned about, you know, uh, you know and I'm going to lose the people. I'm going to lose the influence over the people because people got impatient and some began to leave and go home. He rushed and he took a, a, a sacrifice and he made a sacrifice he was not allowed to make. As soon as he sacrificed that animal, Samuel showed up. And Samuel says, why, why are you doing this? Did I tell you not to wait for me? He says, I waited, but you were late. He says, so? I told you to wait. He says, well, uh, the people were walking away from me. That means what? He was okay with violating a law of God as long as he got to keep the people. It was showing the kind of leader that he was. There are a lot of people that end up in leadership because people like them. People liking you is not what qualifies you for leadership. It's God choosing you. Because if you are the type of person that, you know, your popularity gets you a spot in leadership, then you've got to stay popular to keep your position. Can I please share this as emphatically as I can? The democratic system that is used in the world was not designed by God. It is a world system. God raises up leaders by choosing them. 
Not because many people think that they can. Because you know what I noticed? Whenever you go by popularity, you let people become political. People begin to learn how to gain people's attention. That's what Absalom did against David. You see, what Absalom did is that as, as people would come, he began to win some people over to his side by political popularity. And one day he rose up against his own father and says, well, the people are with me because they like me. And as a result of that, he got banished. You know, he banished his father out of the kingdom, but he ended up losing his own life. Because people's popularity is not what qualifies you for leadership. It's God's choice that qualifies you for leadership. So I have to say that right off the bat. Because when you lead right, you're not always going to be popular. Amen. But when God has chosen you, God will give you the results. There are a lot of people that don't like to not be liked. They feel bad when people don't like you, you know. And then it forces you to try and then do the little dance to win people's, you know, so that they can be more amenable to you. The minute you go that route, you're on your own. God is no longer with you. You are now working the human system in order for you to get popular. The sin of Jeroboam, the, ki the young king that God chose and gave ten tribes to Jeroboam. After Solomon's death, because Solomon's heart had walked away from the Lord, you know, you know, he started following the gods of the wives he married. The Lord split the kingdom into two. He gave ten tribes to Jeroboam. He gave only two tribes, meaning the tribe of Judah and some of the Levites were given to the house of Judah under Jeroboam. But here's what Jeroboam did. After being handed the kingdoms by God himself, he was afraid that he would no longer become popular if he allowed the Israelites to go and worship in Jerusalem because Jerusalem belonged to the other kingdom, the, the kingdom of Judah. So he was afraid that if people go to that church, they might end up liking it there and moving there. So what does he say? Instead of letting the Jews go to the temple to worship, he established two golden calves, meaning fake worship. And he gave it to the people and says, you don't have to go to Jerusalem to worship. You can worship right here in the north. We don't have to go to the house of Judah for worship. So he, wa he, he didn't do that because he was an evil man that wanted to worship idols. He did that because the fear of losing the crowd made him try to keep in the flesh what had been given to him in the spirit. Are we okay? That means that as, God, as a God-ordained leadership, what must we do? Our primary focus is to seek to please the Lord. To seek to love people. We love them with everything, but we seek to please the Lord. Our main job is not to people please. Because once we are caught up in that trap, then our own popularity amongst people becomes more important than whether or not. What if me telling you the truth will make you walk away from me? I'll allow you to walk away as long as I tell you the truth. Why? Because love, what? love rejoices in truth. So love will make you sometimes have to say uncomfortable things at the loss of losing some people. But as long as you tell them the truth in love, you have to leave it up entirely up to God. Because the trap of woman pleasing was the downfall of Saul, the first king of Israel. Amen. So he offered an unlawful sacrifice because he wanted to be disobedient. No, because he felt like he was about to lose the people. The people were walking away. And to please and to keep the crowd, he went ahead and he did something unlawful. Now here's what the Lord says now to Samuel, which I want us to, which bears looking at in 1 Samuel chapter, uh, it was all in 1 Samuel chapter 13. In verse 11. Uh, let, let me go back a few verses. 
in verse 9. So Saul said, bring a burnt offering and a peace offering here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came and Samuel went, and Saul went to meet him that he might greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And he said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines gathered together in Michmash, then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal and I have not made a supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have, no, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people. Because you have not kept the Lord what the Lord commanded you. Then Samuel arose and he went from Gilgal to Geber and Saul numbered the people present with him, about 600 men. Now, this is a little uh, heartbreaking sequence because in this sequence, after Saul had disobeyed God and made an offering to keep the popularity of the people, Samuel says, son, what have you done? And he says, the enemy is up against me. The people were leaving me. I felt compelled to do it because you didn't show up in the days allotted. And now here is the secret to how God chooses leadership. The Lord lets him know. He says, listen, because you have done this, if you had not done this, your kingship over Israel would have been established forever. But now because this is what you chose to do, your kingdom has now been removed from you because God has sought a man after God's own heart. That means now God is not choosing one based on what the people think is a qualified leader. God is now choosing one based on what the Lord finds and what the Lord treasures. And here I'm here to share with you as emphatically as I can that the Lord is interested in the content of the heart. Whatever skills you bring to the church matter, but God doesn't need your skill because God is more skilled than you. If God has your skill but does not have your heart, then he has nothing at all. More than just your service, it's your attitude with which you serve that the Lord is most interested in. I've seen people that acted like they were obeying God and they did that with a sour mood and that did not qualify as worship before God because it's the quality of your heart behind your work and it's exhibited in several ways that I hope we can be able to look at. So again, here's what I want you to say. What I want, what I want, to, say is, what I want to say as clearly as I can. More than the work you can do for God, the Lord desires the heart with which you do it. Amen. A lot of people's service, Pastor Justin, does not enter heaven. It remains on the earth. Even though they sweat while they're doing it, God does not receive it. Because it's not the fact that they're doing something for God. It's that their heart and their attitude is in the wrong place. So that's why with young people I say, never do anything out of rebellion or begrudgingly. Because if you do, then you're doing it for yourself. You're no longer doing it for God. The tale of two sons is the tale of you know, Cain and Abel. Both of them made an offering before God. One offering was received. Why? Because just because you offer something to God does not mean he's obligated to receive it. It matters to him the heart with which it's given. So after Saul failed, now Samuel announced, now God is going to choose a king. And he's going to choose a king based on what? He's looking for a man after, after his own heart meaning the heart by which you do things. 
So, Brother Biju, even as we talk about ICPF, and so, the brothers, it's not how many chapters you open. It's the heart with which the brothers open those chapters here. And those that are doing international ministry, it's not how many. It's about the heart with which it's being done. If it's done for personal gain and for I'm going to do better than you, and I'm gonna, then it's, all of it becomes just earthly activity. It's not the skill with which you sing. It's the heart with which you sing. You may be the best singer in there, but if your heart is off, you might as well sit in the pew and not get up on stage. Because God doesn't care about how well you can sing. He's got angels around his throne that sing a million times better than you. So it's not the action. It's always the heart. I've known people that are gifted communicators. They can preach down the house. And they do that with an attitude that doesn't really care about people or care about God. And God cannot use that. I've watched a man stutter. And people get arrested by the presence of God. They tell a story of a young preacher was asked to speak in a service and it took a long time that took a long time to prepare and he was on there he got up and he presented this wonderful presentation it was great oratory it sounded good but the people were not moved and they asked an aperture an old gentleman to get up also and spoke and he spoke very simply and there was not a dry eye in the building everybody was weeping before the lord and the young man went to the old man and said what did i do wrong I preached, I used examples, I did everything. It sounded good, but the people were not moved. And the old man says, son, it's always a matter of the heart. God is not so crazy about your gift because God is more gifted than you. But the one thing that the Lord is looking for, that only you can give to him, is your heart. What kind of a heart is the Lord looking after? A heart that is... A heart that has a posture of humility. What is humility? Humility is a form of brokenness that can only be a matter of the heart. Humility is not you acting inferior. Humility is a condition of the heart. That's why the Bible says, humble yourself therefore in the sight of the Lord. And what will he do? He will lift you up. That means that the Lord hid promotion. Your promotion is hidden in what? In an act of humility. When you humble yourself down. You humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. I remember a young minister coming up to me. And he wasn't even a minister at that time. He was just some kid, you know, in the youth group that says, well, Pastor Felix, you know, this church, you know, they're, they're putting my gift down. They never give me a chance. And I said, as long as you talk like that, I wouldn't give you that chance either. Why? Because I can already see that your heart is in the wrong place. Why? I'll never muscle myself to a, place, a position to preach anywhere. I don't have to. You invite me, I'll come. You don't invite me, I'll stay at home. Because I learned a long time ago, it has got nothing to do with that. The Lord can bring a little kid, two-year-old here, and can accomplish greater things with a two-year-old than with an old preacher who's full of pride. So once that lesson is learned, then guess what? Lord, I'm available. I didn't that, David. But if you choose to use me, you can use me. If you choose not to use me, it's okay. I'm available is all I can be. So I don't get offended. Even like I, what I said before, Pastor Justin, if you had invited me here to preach, and you felt last night, the Lord says, no, don't let him preach. And he gave you that word. If you decided to speak, I would not have been offended. I would have sat down and I would have taken notes. Because at the end of the day, what's the most important thing? Is that God is glorified. It's not there to build a platform for me. It's not there to present an opportunity for me. It's got nothing to do with any of us. If you don't understand this about leadership, you have no business operating in a leadership capacity. At any time, the Lord can hire you. At any time, he can put you in the game. At any time, he can bench you. It's his choice. Well, I don't like because, you know, I, why don't I be the one to lead this? Because you're saying that. Because as long as that's a problem for you, you, you know, you, you you'd sit down. 
Are we okay? The best lesson you can learn in leadership is a matter of the heart. When you lead from the heart, the Lord multiplies your effectiveness. Multiplies it. What is Saul saying? So Saul is saying, well, well, you know, I had to make a plan because I'm losing the popularity of the people. And oh, oh, you will see the same sin take place in Saul in chapter 15 of the book of 1 Samuel. The Lord sent him on a mission to fight against the Amalekites. Who are the Amalekites? The Amalekites are the group that when Israel was coming from Egypt under Moses, they stopped Israel from passing through their land. Moses went to the Amalekites and said, Sir, can we please, our people are hungry, they are thirsty. I promise you, we will not touch any of your fields. We will stick to the road. But will you allow us to pass through your land to go to the land of promise? And the Amalekites said to Moses, If you pass through our land, we'll attack you. Moses said, I promise we won't touch anything. They said, we don't care. So what did they do? As Moses was marching these former slaves, they had only been free for days when they passed through Rephidim. As they're marching through, the Amalekites gathered in battle formation and they attacked the children of Israel when they were coming out of the land of Egypt. But they didn't attack the strong guys. They attacked the elderly and the weak who were on the outside of the camp. When God saw the Amalekites do that, he vowed, I vow by my name that, they, that I, I will fight with the spirit of Amalek until Amalek is utterly destroyed. So that's why the Lord rose Saul up, the first king of Israel, and said, I want you to go and fight against the Amalekites, and I want you to put all of them to the edge of the sword. And don't take their cattle, don't take their sheep, don't take their goats, don't take anything that belongs to them. Wipe them all out. When Saul went to that battle, he did not know the Lord had sent him to fulfill the 400-year prophecy. He went in there like some people lead. Wrong attitude, as long as it's about me, it's not about you. Your gift is nothing to do with you. It has got everything to do with God. So what does Saul do? He gets into battle. He wins against the Amalekites. Because he's a good warrior? No. Why? Because the grace of God was upon him to win. And when he won, the men, remember I told you, this is a man that loves popularity. The men went to Saul and said, are we going to kill all these animals? Look at how amazing they look. Look at that, you know, that cattle over there. Look at that bull over there. Look at that. Are we going to kill all this? Why are we going to waste, you know, this good barbecue? Right? So they said, ah, let's take some of it with us. And then the men looked at him and said, listen, if you go to Israel and you told them you won, but you don't show them evidence, do you think they'll believe you? So what does Saul say? What do we do? Take the king of the Amalekites. What? And then bring him. Is what is called a doulos, or what is called a doulos is means that the, the captured slave in war. So, what kings used to do back in the day was that whenever you won a battle against another king, you put that king in chains and you let him march ahead of you so that you could show the people, I'm the one who conquered this guy, I'm the one who overcame this guy. So, it was all about self marketing. Saul was trying to market himself to Israel by bringing Agag, the king. But here's what the Lord said. The Lord said to Samuel, I want you to go to that young man right now and ask him why he disobeyed me. So Saul, Samuel comes to Saul and he says, why did you disobey God? And he says, I haven't disobeyed. We won the battle. He says, but yeah, did you follow what the Lord told you to do? What is Agag, the king of the Amalekites, doing here? Well, you know, um, yeah, we captured him. And did the Lord not tell you to destroy all? Yes, he did. But, but, but well... 
uh, the men, you know, the men told me, uh, let's take some of the animals so we can go and sacrifice them to the Lord your God. And here is when the greatest leadership lesson was taught. When, Saul looked at, when Samuel looked at Saul and said, son, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen is better than the fat of rams. For the spirit of rebellion is the same as the spirit of witchcraft. And the spirit of a, you know, a stubborn self-centeredness is equal to the spirit of sorcery. Meaning you might as well have conducted a witchcraft ceremony. What your heart has done before God is equal to witchcraft. Ride a broom. You know, wear a, ch a, 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 a choker or a neck chain of bones. Because what you've got right now is the equal is if you make a pentagram, you know, and stand in it and do a satanic chant. What you've done is satanic, which is what? You've done what you thought was service to God, but you did it with the spirit of rebellion. And to God, it's witchcraft. Are we okay? If at home, the parents ever ask you to do something, when you're like, okay, fine. Have you ever done that? Witchcraft. <laughs> fine, I'll do it. You know, one of the, one of the pictures that, that typifies my childhood. How many of you guys have seen this being passed around on YouTube? Is this kid lying in bed, right? And his mom keeps calling him. Da -da -da -da, come, come over here. And eventually he goes, Argh! and he goes up there and he throws his, have you guys seen that, that clip? At all? That was Felix as a child. Yes, I obeyed, but I yelled and I punched the wall. The silent yell, because if your mother she didn't need to hear, if she heard it, you're in real trouble. So, this woman, and God doesn't take that. My whole point is this. It's not enough that you do things in response to obedience. It's your character and your attitude as you do it. A lot of people have a rebellious streak in them, so they do God's work with a rebellious attitude. And to God, it's equal to witchcraft. God is concerned about the content of your heart, meaning the content of your character or the content of your attitude as you serve him. But you already know that, right? You're like, tell us something we don't know, Felix. I will. But let's just talk about what you already know. And what you already know is this. It's not enough what you do for God. It matters to God. The attitude with you do it. What is more important, preaching or being an usher? What do you think? Preaching, I'm going to say preaching is more important. But here's what I'll tell you. Do you know that they say for every church that the average person that visits a church decides in the first 10 minutes if they're going to come back to the church? What happens in the first 10 minutes? Have they heard the preaching? Have they heard the worship? What, who have they met? The usher. So what if the usher, what if you have a bad morning that morning and you come to church and you're grumpy and, well, they asked me to usher and somebody's walking in for the first time. They drove into a strange driving drive through They don't even know, is this a church or is this a little building that used to be a McDonald's? And so they drive all the way. <laughs> what is this little building sitting on 10 acres? Why don't they build a bigger one? I'm trying to prophesy here, amen. Anyway, <laughs> so, they, so they drive in here, right? And the first person they, 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 they meet at the door is talking to their friend who they haven't seen in three days. And they don't break eyesight with their friend. And you walk in, you don't know where to go. And they just look at you and they are, yeah, you know, yeah, and the Mavs, you know. And this, you know, oh, did you hear? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that there's, you know, is coming back to, and they're talking about the cowboys, the poor things. And, and you're ignoring a person who's right there. 
right? And then you're like, oh, you got to give them the bulletin because you're Asha. Hi, how are you? Yeah, thank you. There you go. And you know what? And that person just takes that and they've already decided, okay, I'm not coming back here. And the preacher hasn't even preached it. Can I tell you what's more important? The most important function in the church is whoever the person first meets when they come into your drive-through. They have the most important ministry in this church. Do you know who the most important person is in a, in, in a, in a business? For some of you that are, that are business owners, it's not the CEO. Nobody hardly ever missed the CEO. The most important person in your business is your receptionist. Because if your receptionist has an attitude, it doesn't matter if the CEO is a heart of gold. Do you know what is the, the secret of Chick-fil-A? So with Chick-fil-A, right, it's not, it's not the Chick-fil-A sauce. It's not the Polynesian sauce as much as I like that. The secret to, let me tell you this about Chick-fil-A. On a per capita basis, they make more money than any other fast food franchise, but they're completely closed on Sunday. They don't make any money on Sunday, but they still make more money than McDonald's and all of these on a per capita basis because they learned something. They learned that their most important employee is the first employee you talk to. Have you seen how courteous those kids are when you go to a Chick-fil-A? They treat you like your family, right? Hi, sir, how are you doing? You know, and we know the drive-thru is long, so we're going to come to your car <laughs> with our little iPad. Right? What are you going to order here, sir? Oh, and they found a way that by the time you get to the window, they already know, yeah, that dude in the, that black dude in the black thing, he just ordered fried chicken. That's a joke. He doesn't know that. <laughs> so anyway, so by the way, you drive, so what did the, the owners of Chick-fil-A found out? They found out that courtesy in the first person that people meet is the most important way to build their brand. It doesn't matter how amazing the manager is. Very few people ever meet the manager, but everybody meets the person who serves them first. What is the most important ministry in this building is not the preacher. The most important ministry in this building is whoever is outside when a first-time visitor comes in. You have an opportunity for a family to be raised in church. They can come here and their kids can be raised here and they'll be supernaturally blessed. Or in 10 minutes, they can decide they're never going to come to this church again because somebody out there, not because you were rude to them, but because you paid no attention to them whatsoever. So now here's what you need to understand. The ministry that holds high in God, Saul as king of Israel, what he did for Israel did not make him more important as what David did for sheep. So... Let me explain to you what I mean. The Lord is watching Saul with Israel and is watching David looking after sheep. And he noticed that the way that David looks after these animals, his whole heart is in it. What is he doing? He knows that a shepherd must find safe pasture. So he's looking for the greenest pastures. He knows that sheep are not good with running water. You know why? Because their wool, if they fall into a river, they drown. So he sees them trying to find them still waters, meaning what? Calm waters, so they don't drown. He sees them, he sees David with a rod and the staff. When David was writing Psalm 23, he was writing what he did as a shepherd. But he says, this is what the Lord does for me. So what does he do? What is called the rod and the staff? The staff is the one you encourage the sheep to move forward. But the rod had a hook in it so that if they fell, he could pull them out of danger. So that's why he says your rod and your staff, meaning the staff that you, the rod you make me move faster and the staff that rescues me when I'm down, they comfort me. So as the Lord is watching David, he's like, the way this young man looks after sheep is better than the way that man looks after Israel. So when it was time for God to choose a king, he looked at who has the right heart when he leads. Now notice this. Saul did everything for applause, but sheep, they cannot clap hands. They don't have hands to clap. 
So what happens? You get no applause for looking after sheep. You have to look to God for what he thinks about it. So here's what happens. A lion comes and grabs one of the lambs, runs away. And the Lord is watching. How is this boy going to react? Because here's one of two reactions. You can let it go and cut your losses and say, ah, it's just one lamb, you know. Uh, what, you know. If I tell my father it was a lion, I'm sure my dad will understand. But David took his job so seriously that he risked his life on behalf of a lamb. So David says, when a lion grabbed one of the lambs, I went after the lion and I grabbed the lamb from between the lion's jaw. And when that lion rose up against me, I grabbed it by the beard and I beat it to death. The whole time, there's no other human being watching. It's animals and David. But heaven is watching. Because what is the qualifying posture by which God chooses a leader? It's here. Which you mean the attitude with which you do your job. David did the looking after sheep like God was watching every move. And so everything he did was as if to honor the Lord. He risked his life twice for a lamb when he went after the lion and the bear. So when God was about to choose a leader in Israel, he knew exactly which house to go to. He says, I'm going to the house of Jesse. Why? There's a boy there. If you see the way he does his work, whoo, he looks after sheep better than most people look after people. I know he can lead my people well. What did that have to do with, you know, uh, his size or his stature? It didn't matter. He was one of the shortest people in his father's family. The Bible says he looked like a youth. He was ruddy, he's small. He looked unimpressive in as far as his physical stature was concerned. But the stature of his heart moved heaven because of the attitude with which he did the things he did. What's the most important ministry in this church? It's the person who cleans the bathrooms. Why? Have you ever been to a church with a dirty bathroom? I have. And what? And that was the last time I ever went there. Why? I'm not going in that mess. People cannot even look after your own bathrooms. What am I coming back? It shows that, that if, you cannot, if, if, if you cannot take care of the little hidden things, it means that your heart is not in the right place. So what happens? A person walks in here, walks in the bathroom, the bathroom is absolutely filthy. They decide, ah, I'm not going to bring my kids to this because it's just unsanitary. They don't ever come back to that church. Did the pastor's preaching have anything to do with whether or not the church grows? No. It's always the point of first contact is the most important ministry in any ch church. The first person they meet, the first place that they go. So for that uncle, that auntie, or that young person that comes in early and just decides, you know what, I'm just going to make sure that the bathrooms are clean and that they have everything in there. You've probably done more for the kingdom of God than a person that is singing up on stage or a person that is working any other logistical work in church. And it was a small little thing to you, but it was a great thing in as far as the kingdom is concerned. Are we okay? It's all a matter of the heart. I don't have a position in the church, but I have a lawnmower. So I'll come in there with my kids, boom, boom, zim, 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 why? Because Sunday's coming and we just want to make sure the place is looking good for when people drive in. We get some mulch, and on the way in, boom, boom, we can fix that. Simple little things when the heart is in the right place. I just want to serve the Lord. I want to, and I thank God for what you guys did even with the stage. I know the last time I came, I spoke about the way things looked. Remember back in the day? Remember when wires were everywhere and the, back, the backdrop just looked so, it looked like we're in Kerala. You couldn't tell if we're in Kerala or we were in the United States. 
So guess what? So now while you're filming and you're live streaming and somebody in Saudi Arabia or somebody in one of wherever that, that person is, is looking and the background looks good and the lighting looks good and they're able to attend a, a service in Zion even though they're in the Middle East. They are feasting from what you've done. Just that little bit of a change. You've just blessed somebody who's thousands of miles away where they can log into your service and they can be a partaker of that. And you don't look like a public access channel. Because nobody ever watches a public access channel for, for more than five minutes. Because it's just horrible looking. <laughs> because it's not aesthetically pleasing. Ah, okay. Talk about something else, Felix. No, I won't. Let's talk about this. It's little things that you do in ministry that are most consequential. The littlest of things that can move mountains because God can use that which is done with the right heart and the right attitude. The Lord can cause that to move mountains. A simple little invitation to church is what brought me into the kingdom. You know, I told you my dad passed away three weeks ago. The greatest event in my life happened by me leading my, my, my dad to the Lord and me baptizing my own father. But do you know where that story began? That story did not begin when I, when I led my dad to the Lord. That story began when I was 11 years old and a 12-year-old kid, one year older than me, came to me and says, Felix, would you, like, would you like to go to church with us? And I said, no, I can't because I don't have a ride. And he says, I talked to my dad and my dad said he will come and give you a ride. And a family that was a white American family from Louisiana, they were Southerners, decided they were going to drive 10 miles out of their way to pick up a little black boy to take him to church. And the other reason I'm in the ministry here, this is my 24th year, I think, or 25th year in the ministry, full time. And they didn't have to preach to me because they didn't know how to preach. But they had a car. And that car is what they used to go and pick up a boy and drive him to church. And that drive to church did not just change me. It changed my entire family. My mom, my sisters, and finally my dad was the last one to come in. So now when we're in heaven, my whole family is going to be with me on the other side. Because some, someone could preach well? No. Because some average person in church decided that I don't know how to preach, I don't know how to teach, but I know how to give a ride to church. And with the right attitude, they came and picked up a boy and they took him to church and changed my entire, my entire generation was changed because of Dwayne and his parents. Because they didn't look at me and just say, he's just 11 years old. They looked at me and they valued a little 11-year-old African boy that did not know God from the men on the moon, that could not have found his own way to church because it, churches was miles away. You never would, I never would have walked there. I didn't know where it was. It was miles away. But they came and they picked me up, and that's the reason why I'm preaching you today. So you ask, I ask you, what's the most important ministry in the church? It's not what you think. It's the ones that invite people on Sunday. It's the ones that say to their kids, hey, listen, your friends, your little friends that you're in school with, that don't have a ride, let them know that if they need to come to Sunday school, we've got VBS coming. Let them know if they need a ride to VBS, we'll go and we'll pick them up. It's the person that comes early and makes sure that the bathrooms have their toilet paper and that they're looking clean and sanitary. It's the person that understands that if I'm in that parking lot, I'm a missionary. Why? Because for that person that is walking in here, maybe their background is Muslim. Maybe their background is Hindu. The Hindus and the Muslims have one thing in common, and all Asians particularly have one thing in common. They are very sensitive to hospitality. They are less sensitive to how well you preach. They are more sensitive to whether you treat them hospitably or not. Because most of the, you know, most of the ethnicities, including Africans, they hold hospitality in high esteem. 
So what do you do? You strategically place yourself in the parking lot. You drive into this building. You look to the left. You look to the right. If you see common faces, you already know. Hey, how are you? How was your week? If you see a new face you've never seen before, you go walk up to them. Hey, man, brother, what's your name? I've never seen you before. Oh, it's my first time. It's your first time here. Well, come in and let me introduce you to Pastor. Pastor Justin, this is so-and-so and their family. They're new in town. Okay, wonderful. Hey, listen, you don't have to sit by yourself. Come sit with me and my family. And, and, and I, I also anticipate you probably need to know where the restrooms are. Let me show you where the bathrooms are. This is the men's and this is the women's. And we have a program for the kids. And that's the room that they're in. What have you done? The preaching hasn't started. Praise and worship hasn't started. But you probably just want another family for the church. Because you took time you could have spent talking to people you already know to serve people you didn't know. So I ask you, which is the most important ministry in the church? And half the time it's not hard. Half the church thinks. You don't need a position for that. You don't need to be on the board for that. You don't need to be a member of a committee for that. You just have to be a person that understands when I drive into the house of God, I'm a minister. And Sunday, I'm in evangelistic mode. We are reaching the kingdom of God. So I'm aware. So what is the long-term dream that I might have, even for Zion, my brother? Uh, let me, can I just share with you ministries that have changed my life? Simple little things. One ministry that changed my life, and I utilized this, was that I, was, I, at, I attended a service that was run by a man by the name of Rob, Rob McFarlane. Rob McFarlane was a youth pastor for Hear the Word Ministries, and he held a little conference uh, on, a, on Saturday in Harare, which was the capital city. And here's what happened. I went to that meeting on Saturday. Then early Monday morning, I drove all the way back home. I lived 250 miles away from that place. And when I arrived at home on Tuesday, early Tuesday morning, there was a letter from Rob McFarlane saying, Felix, I'm glad you came to join us on Saturday. It was wonderful having you. And I, all I ask myself is when did they mail that letter? I was just there three days ago. Do you know that that hit me hard? That they acknowledged my attendance to their meeting within two days of me getting home, a letter was there. So you know what I learned with, with our church as we're planting a church, Pastor Justin? I learned that when a visitor shows up, part of what I had, is a, I, I was very strict on this, is that whenever we had first time visitor information in the church, I, we wrote a personalized letter with the names of the individuals and we posted that letter on our way home from church on Sunday. So if they showed up for Sunday morning service, by the time we got to our home, we'll have dropped that letter in the mailbox. Why? Because I learned that when that letter gets to them early in the, in the week, they are astounded how quickly we responded to their coming. Guess what happens? The people we did that to ended up always coming back. Why? Because it's not, they didn't remember what I taught. They remember the way they were treated. They just said those guys paid attention. And so what we used to do with a welcome letter, sometimes we'd send them, it was the CD days, things have changed now. Nowadays you send them a link, you know. But back in the CD days, send them a CD of one of my best teachings, you know, and then just say, hey, listen, we just want to be a blessing to you during this week. God bless you. It was wonderful to have you in our church. But we made sure that we did not go home on Sunday until that letter was already in the mail because I wanted it to get to them as early as possible so that they might be as shocked to receive it as I was to receive a letter from Rob McFarlane two days after I left his meeting. Simple things. Simple little things. What is the most important ministry in the church? You'll be surprised. What is the most important anointing in the church? It's the gift of helps and the ministry of hospitality. Because people always remember the way they were treated. They always remember that. Always remember that. 
So, but Felix, you know, I haven't seen my friends all week, you know, so I want to hang out with my buddies and I want to hang out with my friends, you know. Yeah, you hang out with your friends after church. But when you come to church, hey, what's up? Yeah, Benu, we'll catch up later. Right now, we're on a mission. Why? Because the might have first time, I'm sure there's always a Benu or a Sunil, right? <laughs> so, uh, right now, what we have to keep our eyes open in case somebody walks in here for the first time. You young ladies, when you see a person within your own age bracket and they walk in here, one of the most, and I shared this last night, but I have to repeat it, man. I was broken to tears at the ICPF camp in San Diego when a little kid this height came up to me and he asked if I could be his friend and asked me, how do I make friends because I'm unable to make friends? I don't know how to make friends. Can you please help me? And I'm looking and saying, this kid, he was so earnest. He was so, it was just the most beautiful little conversation I had ever had with a little tyke. We're sitting there talking about, you know, so I said, um, do you reach out? He's tried to reach out to friends in his own group and, and now nobody wanted to, them, wanted to talk to him. Then I had two parents walk up to me and they said, Pastor, can you please pray for our kid because he's having a hard time making friends. I said, and you all are Christians in a church and your kid is part of a Sunday school group? I said, I need to talk to your Sunday school teachers. Why? Because do you know what my Sunday school teachers used to say to me? Whenever a new kid came to the church, they were assigned to some of the older kids. We had kids assigned to us. Okay, Felix and Billy, yeah, you get to play with Joe. Ah, no, ah, nothing. You get to play with Joe because Joe is new. So what do we do? We included Joe. Guess what happens three weeks later? We find out Joe is not a bad kid. He's actually pretty cool. Now he's part of the family. So we, they didn't let us organically form friendships. It was intentional. We were made to play with some kids. Because if, if nobody told us that, what were we going to do? You stick to the ones you already know. So what happens? A kid comes into church filled with kids their own age, and they walk out of there lonely. Do you know what? The, we found out again at another ICPF camp that there were many kids that were battling with depression. There was one kid at the Great Lakes area that was going through a very horrible situation that we couldn't even tell the kids that were there. Walked up to me by him, and I asked him, you got your friends around you. Have you shared with them what you're struggling with? He says, Pastor Felix, I haven't, they don't even know. They don't even know that moments before I went on stage to play, I just had an episode. So then I'm like, what type of, we, we were told that to be a friend or to make friends was mission work when I was growing up. There was a kid that I knew that was covered in third degree burns. When I first saw him, he scared me because nose was on the side and ears was off and eyes were all this. He had been burnt. I think his, one of his parents had set him on fire as a kid because he had mental issues and he survived. And I remember when I first saw him, the kid really, you know, he, he scared me. And I was like, Lord, please, I, I, I don't want to feel this way. And that guy became one of the best buddies. Within two weeks, I could not see his burns. I, I thought he was a very good-looking kid. And I, I couldn't see all of that stuff. Why, within two weeks of becoming a friend? Because we're taught that you get out of your way and you befriend a kid that nobody else. It's, what's the most important ministry in the church, you ask me? It's not what you may think. It's being a friend to the outcast. It's being a greeter in the parking lot. It's being someone sensitive when you see somebody who's never been here before to let them know if I can introduce them to the leaders and to pastor. Hey, these are the guys that are on the board. These are the leaders of the church. You connect them with people. It's, oh, you have a kid who's this age. Well, I have a daughter who's this age. Molly, come over here. This is, a, this is a kid your own age and they're new to church. Can they hang with you and your friends today? What does the Lord want to do? The Lord wants to grow his house. How does he grow his house? He does not grow his house by what happens on the stage and what happens behind the pulpit. He grows the house based on what happens in the pew. 
You that show up and sit here, your missionaries, your Zion Church missionaries. Don't show up to church by yourself. Make a phone call or two. And what, if, what, what, what I end up doing with my youth group, right? Um, because when, when, with, with the youth, I found out that if you don't get them busy, oh, they'll get busy with stuff they should not get busy with. So usually when I see kids that are getting busy with other things, I'm like, oh my gosh, what did I do with them? I, I didn't keep them busy enough with the good stuff. So then we decided that, I, I remember one particular day, and I shared this year before, that I was just looking, Lord, what am I going to do? Because I had this kid that was just a problem. Her mom had complained to me, Felix, you know, Chrissy is so misbehaved. I don't know what I'm going to do with her. So with Chrissy, what I did was I just had this idea one Wednesday. I went into the room and I looked at the chairs in the room. So I tore that whole room up and I put everything upside down. I literally kicked the chairs over, everything. It was a mess. Then I called uh, her, her mom, Beverly. I said, Bev, can you bring Chrissy an hour early to church today? And she says, why? I says, because I need help in setting up the room. Why is the room in a mess? Don't ask. <laughs> Just bring her. Well, Chrissy came and said, hey, listen, uh, can you help me set the chairs up? Pastor Felix, what happened to the church? Don't ask. Just help me set the chairs up. So she helped me. We set the chairs up. And then I said, uh, the following week, I decided, ah, let me do it again. Tore the room up again. Threw the chairs everywhere. Uh, Chrissy, can you come in a bit early? I need you to help me set up the room. Oh, okay. Boom. So Chrissy came in early. And then she set up the room. So I said, okay, fine. Now, uh, can you help me pray over every seat? Because, you know, there are kids coming to youth group today. We want to make sure that every seat is anointed. Okay, so she helps me pray. And then uh, before long after that, I decided, ah, there's too much light coming in. And you know, you want to control the light in a room. You guys know that, right? You know that sometimes it's too bright. I'm trying to help you all out. Come on, work with me. Amen. So why? Because for youth meetings, I had these amazing strobe lights that we wanted to use, but you can't use them in a room this bright. And the light was coming in from the window, so I told Chrissy, come in early, we're going to put newspapers over all the windows to kill the light coming in from the outside so we can control the light coming in from the inside. Wink, wink. So anyway, so that's what we did, right? And um, so Chrissy came in and we set this up and the strobes were looking and the, what, the colored lights that were there. So it was just, I could see the girl was beginning to change right in front of me because we had given her a mission to do. Then now I decided, okay, fine, Chrissy, I'm going to give you five names every Wednesday. I want you to call these names on Tuesday to invite them to youth meeting for Wednesday. So she had five names, and here's how I want, you to, I want the phone call to go. You know, hey, hey, Sneha, what's up? What you doing? I'm like, I'm cool. How's your week going? The week is going fine. Is there anything I can pray for? Uh, no, I'm, I'm good. You all coming to youth group tomorrow. You know we're on at seven, right? And whenever a kid says, uh, it's because they were not coming on showing up. They were not planning on coming, right? Because, but now that you've called them, they are committed. Then they're like, um, oh, what, what is it? Oh, my mom is working. Well, don't worry. Auntie and so-and-so live right across town, and I can call her right now. She can come pick you up. Well, okay. That means what? I wasn't planning on coming. Now I feel obligated to because you called me. So what would happen? Wednesday night, the room was packed. And then I could tell when my callers didn't make the call. Why? We'd get to Wednesday night, and it's half the crowd. So whenever I saw half the crowd, I'll go to my callers because I gave them all five names. And I said, you guys make a phone. Oh, sorry, I got busy. Pastor. I'm like, I could tell. You got busy, why? Because nobody showed up. Why? We found out another ministry was a calling ministry. Meaning what? Before you come to church on Sunday, you make calls on Saturday. And say, hey, we got service tomorrow. Are you coming? Ah, oh, well, well, well. We can arrange a ride if you need a ride. Well, then, you know, the kids were, oh, you, you can always, church is done by 12. You can always still make, you know, the, the, the picnic with the kids. Well, okay, we'll see you tomorrow. Boom, church is full. Call us, don't call. Churches are empty. Why am I so, so the question I have is, what's the most important 
ministry in the church, not what you think. Why? I can have the greatest word ready for you on Sunday and nobody shows up. It does no good. And you can pick up a phone and call somebody and bring five people that come to church. Two of those are impacted because of this amazing word God gave me. But I, I will posit that what you did in bringing them in was greater than what I did in preparing that message. Because if that message had not hit any ears, I don't care how good it is, it was worthless. So what's the most important ministry in the church, you ask me? Not what you think. Are we okay? Let me describe to you what I believe will be the ideal Zion situation. Can I just dream aloud? You guys allow me to do that. I mean, you flew me all the way from Boston. You can allow me to dream aloud a little bit. Okay. So I imagine, maybe because you've got enough acreage, I imagine an amazing building right here. It will be more than one story, though, because it will have really, really high ceilings. Because you need high ceilings when you can have that major projector thingy with the big, big, big projector in there. Because that's always important. Amen. That's a starter kit for cool church right there. Amen. You walk in. It's kind of, you know, the, 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 the colors in. You got that gray. You got the purple. You got all the stuff you got going on there. But the richer version of that. Okay. This is the poor man's version. You'll have the richer version of that, right? So it's, it's really cool and it's out there. The sound is pristine. But, way, but as I drive into the parking lot, I am met with the, the, the parking lot team. They got their little yellow vests and they're waving at me as I drive in. What's up, Pastor Felix? Go on. He said, and they get on their little radios because all of them always have the radio, right? Hey, Pastor Felix, just come in. Get the best parking spot for him because he's cool like that. So then I drive in and then I was like, Pastor Felix, it's over here. It's like uh, the parking for you right here. What's up, man? How's things going? Boom. We're going in. And in there, I can hear the speakers are playing some worship music because the band is about to get started. I walk in church and I can see people just walking around because they're all into this thing. The worship team is behind there and it's getting ready. But as soon as I walk through the door, I've got greeters that just love on me. What's up, Pastor Felix? This is the bulletin and you know what? And then when I walk in, instead of just sitting where I want, I've got people that will lead me and say, we got some spaces up front. Why? Because, Pastor, we like to fill the front seats first so that those that come in late, don't have to walk all the way to the front of the service when everybody's already sitting down. So we fill the front seats first. And so everybody starts in the front. Boom, boom, boom. The chairs at the back are still empty for the stragglers. You always get those that come in late, especially if you're Indian or African. Somebody's going to come late. Amen. Because they think if they leave the house at the time church starts, they're on time. You know, that's just the way we think. Indian standard time, African standard time, same thing. Well, anyway, so we, we drive India and there's a countdown clock. Why? Because we get started at 10 o'clock, man. Not five after, not two minutes after. No, 10 o'clock. And then as the, as the countdown is beginning to happen, you know, everything begins to warm up and you look out in the congregation, greet the person to your right, bring the person to the left, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Bam, the band starts playing. Amazing service. Right? After service is over, please don't rush out. Take the time to make a connection with people. Go to the lobby where we've got coffee and we've got this. You can come and hang out with your family. Come and meet the pastoral staff. We'll be waiting for you there. And the leaders will meet you and they'll greet you there. But during the service, fill out the first time visitor package. And you know what? We've got a gift for you in the gift store. Your pastor has his latest book. And, and Brother Biju wrote his book on, you know, how to start chapters of ICPF in all other cities. So we have the books in the bookstore. Come on up and come and hang out. With the, don't, don't rush in and rush out of church. We want to take time to get to know you. People hang out here and hour after service, people are still on the property. Some kids are throwing a frisbee in the front lawn, just hanging out with their buddies and hanging out with their friends. Church family. Please come back on Wednesday for Wednesday service. Our, week, our youth service is on Friday night. 
We've got an amazing speaker. One of our own will be speaking this, 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 this Friday. So you all need to come. And your, our youth ministry's name is Zion Awesomeness, something, something. You have a name. You're a youth ministry with an actual name, right? It's going to be on fire. So please come on out and bring some people. Something like that. That's me just dreaming aloud. So what ministries do we find from there? We find a parking lot crew. We find an usher team that are greeters. We find an usher team that help people with sitting. Why? I've been in services where I've walked in. And I, instead of trying to find a spot for myself, I would rather sit in the back and have one Because the last thing you want to do is to disturb what's going on, right? So an usher just goes in and the signal, I have one spot. How many of you? It's just one of you. Come on over here. Boom. Sit me right in my place with minimal interference. What has happened? I've been treated well. All the way from when I walked into the gate of the church, there was somebody to greet me. Do you know why? Because what you didn't know was even though I decided to come to the church, I was still thinking twice because I've never been there before. So I was going to drive right by your driveway as a church. But it was too late because why? Somebody saw me, they waved at me, and they ushered me in. So they broke the last resistance I had. I wanted to come to church, but I wasn't sure. And as I was driving by, I almost drove by. But the person that was waiting at the gate waved me in. It's actually happened to me before. There was a church called Power Invasion. And uh, the Lord had told me to go there that morning, but I was a bit nervous. I didn't know anybody there. And so I was very nervous as I drove by because they always, it was hard to find parking at Power Invasion. Literally, you have to walk a mile either way. There'll be cars lined up. So I, I was a first-time visitor for them. At that time, I'd heard about them. So I just decided ah, I was going to drive by. When I drove by the church, the person with the parking lot attendant saw me, and they waved at me with the biggest smile like they knew me. I didn't know them. But they were like, hey, what's up? And then when I drove in, they said, Are you, have you been here before? I said, no, sir, it's my first time. He said, don't worry, we have two empty spots for first-time visitors. They radioed. The whole parking lot was full, but they kept two slots next to pastor's parking for first-time visitors. They radioed to the other guy, says, I have a first-time visitor here. They're coming in. By the time I turned the corner to get into that, I was looking. There were cars everywhere, and I felt like royalty because they ushered me to a parking spot. They said, welcome to a church, man. Welcome to Power Invasion. What did the pastor preach that day? I don't remember. You know what I remember? The way I was treated. That somebody waved at me when I, walked, when I went in. Somebody saved a spot for me as a first-time visitor. And I tell you what, I was in Power Invasion for many meetings after that. I brought people there. Some of the guys that were in my Bible college ended up being on the worship team at Power Invasion. And I'm the one who introduced them to that, to that ministry. Why? They treated me like royalty, man. What's, what, what budget do you use for that? The budget of show up. Just show up. That's how much it costs. Are we okay? Am I boring you? A tale of two, two churches. The church that I grew up in, I was telling Pastor Justin this, the church that I grew up in, was my, my, my pastor was Bishop Tudor Bismarck. To this day, I think he's the greatest preacher I've ever known. He's a powerful man of God. But we were not the biggest church. You know what was a bigger church? It was a church that was pastored by Pastor Tom Dishell. And, and I love Pastor Tom, wonderful man of God. But I actually listened to a sermon he preached one time that he took from another preacher. Not the main points. Everything. The opening, like literally, like he memorized a preacher that I know was in San Antonio, was a major preacher during those days, you know, pastor of a church in San Antonio. He took every point, including the jokes. But what he didn't know is I listened to that message over and over again. So 
a third of a way, I'm like, this sounds like this preacher's sermon. And then he made the joke. I'm like, but that one told this joke. And he told the joke. And I was like, he took everything. So his greatest gift is not preaching. His greatest gift is not teaching. When my pastor could preach down the house, but we stayed small, we stayed underfunded. The only difference was this, though. When you went to hear the word which Pastor Tom Deschel, it was run immaculately well by teams that knew that whenever the church met, they were on mission. What do I mean? It means from the time you drive into that place in Africa to the time you sit down, you feel the spirit of hospitality. You are taken care of by strangers. You are given a place to sit. And you just wonder, my goodness, what, why are these people so, what, what does it feel like? It feels like you drove into a Chick-fil-A after visiting Wendy's. And you're looking at Wendy's and saying, Ugh, first of all, the food is horrible. Second of all, it was just grease and bacon. And then on top of that, I was treated not well at all. And then I go to this place. I am greeted by wonderful people. They are courteous. They walk in like they're actually happy I'm there. I've been to a church where they're like, oh, yeah, uh, bulletin. Almost as if to say, you could have skipped your bro. I would not have minded. My life has not been measurably changed by you showing up. So just get your bulletin and walk in. And I've gone to other churches where strangers shook my hand and I felt the love of God in them. And I wanted to stay a little bit longer. So here's what happened. Here the word grew. They established one of the best uh, ministry campuses we have in my country. is Pastor Tom Duchel and his pirated you know, uh, sermons. And here was my man of God, a prince amongst preachers. And we always seemed to struggle to maintain momentum. The two differences between the two was not the quality of the preaching or the quality of the worship. We used to worship, man. We used to sing until, uh, my goodness, until heaven came down. It was just that one was administratively sound. So now our ministry has changed under Bishop Tudor Bismarck because one thing I learned about my pastor is he has a learning curve. A learning curve is one of the most powerful things you can possess as a leader. I'll give you guys an example with David, then I'm going to come and make my point. What was the, the problem of Saul? The failure to adjust. Why? You made a mistake. So what do you do? Say, I'm sorry, and make amends. What did Saul try and do? Qualify his mistake. Argue for the sake of his mistake. Well, it's not my fault, it's the man. So he always gave excuses but never changed. The story of David and the Ark of the Covenant goes like this. Let me give you the story real quick. What happened is that during the time of Eli, the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines. Remember that one of Eli's sons, his, his, his wife was pregnant, and she gave birth when the Ark was, was captured, and she called the name of that son what? Ichabod, which means what? The glory has departed, right? So what happened when the Ark of the Covenant, what is the Ark of the Covenant? It is the box that represented the government and the presence of God. It was captured by the Philistines. Do you know what the Philistines did? The Philistines were hit with tumors, right? They were covered in tumors. So they decided, take the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel. But how did they decide to take it to Israel? They took cows, and get, got an, uh, 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 not oxen, but cows, meaning milking cows, right? That were literally, they had calves, so they were milking. Then they put yokes on cows and put the ark on a cart. And they said, if, if these cows follow their instinct, they'll still stay in Felicia close to their calves. But if it's of God to return the ark, they will go against their instinct and go toward Israel. So what happened? They put the ark on this cart, and what did the cows do? They went back to Israel. 
in spite of their, their calves crying for them. They went against their instinct. So now here's what happened. The ark is then taken back by Israel and it's put in the house of a man called Aminadab where it stays for 20 years, right? Stays 20 years in the house of Aminadab. Now David wants to bring the ark of the covenant to the city of David. So what is the thing? How was it transported last time? Oh, it was cows. So what does David do? He decides, let's do oxen instead. So he takes oxen and takes it from the house of Aminadab. Aminadab had a son by the name of, starts with a U and a Z. Uzzah. Come on, you guys. So as the ark of the Lord is coming from the house of Aminadab, the oxen stumble and Uzzah touches the ark and God strikes him down. Not the devil. God struck him down dead. What does David do? David is upset at God. Why? For the death of this young man. So he says, I don't want the ark to come into the city of David. They send it to the house of a Levite proselyte who's called Obed-Edom, the Gittite. They send the ark. It stays there for three months in the house of Obed-Edom. The Lord blesses everything that Obed-Edom has. So David hears that, hey, Obed-Edom has been supernaturally blessed because of the ark of the covenant. So what does David do? He says, let's bring the ark back. But what has he been doing in the meantime? Because the last time you tried, it failed. Why are you trying again? What was David doing in the meantime? He was researching. What was he researching? What went wrong the first time? What is he showing? An ability to adjust by virtue of learning. What did Saul have? A fixed mindset. What does David have? A growth mindset. What is the difference between the two? One learns from his mistakes but maintains them and justifies them. The other learns from his mistakes and he makes them right. So David has done the research and in the research he found out, oh, the, the law says the ark is not to be carried by animals. It's supposed to be carried by the priesthood. So then David goes to the Levites and said, we did it wrong the last time. Why? We had no business putting the ark of God on an oxen drawn by, 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 on a cart drawn by oxen, which you guys should have carried it. So what does David do now? Now with the new information based on research, meaning what? He has learned something he didn't know before. He goes to the Levites and says, guys, you have to consecrate yourself to carry the ark of the Lord on your shoulders. When the Levites do that, the ark goes all the way into the city of David and dances, David dances before the ark as it comes in. Now, I'm giving you the example of my pastor. We are in the process right now of building a 10,000-seat auditorium in Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe is in complete economic diastrates right now. We don't have a currency of our own. So how did that amazing preacher that could hardly attract a crowd, what has happened now that he's in a place where in the down economy is building a 10,000-seat cathedral? Is because one thing I learned about my pastor was that he learned from everywhere he went. So he knew what he was weak in. What was he weak in? He was weak in processes that build healthy churches. So what does he do? Everything he learned from T.D. Jakes, everything he learned from Mike Hayes, things that he learned from, you know, uh, Bishop Hurd, things that he learned from, you know, Joseph Garlington. He began to implement the strategies in our church. And our, our church, my home church, began to get more and more solid. What he was lacking for in administrative skill, he found a way to learn that. And once he mastered that, the church is now in a growth spurt where we're having a 10,000-seat auditorium in the worst economy, one of the worst economies our nation has ever had and it's well resourced this cathedral is going to be built in no time why was I giving that as an example I was giving this as an example is that in order for you guys to maintain what you already had here at Zion just keep doing what you were doing why because whatever you were doing is what built the house you have 
But we want something different, Felix. We want to grow. Yeah, I know. So what do we have to do? You have to learn to make adjustments. But what if people don't like him? You got to learn to love him, hug him. But you have to keep doing what is right in order to make that. The changes have to happen. The way you do certain things have to happen. Aesthetics matter. Amen. Are we okay? This is not the best lighting you can have in this house. This is the lighting you can have in your house. Except I've been in your, no, I've been in your house. Listen to me. I've been in your houses. So I know a lot of you, your houses, you're better lighting than this. You look and you say, ah, that one, I, that one, I can never have that in my house, brother. No, that, that is so 1982, you know? But you have it in the house here. Amen. That's it. That's the best color we could come up with, right? <laughs> yeah, we're going to have this off-white. It's almost white, and it'll be textured. And uh, Okay, okay. Hey, if it's the best we can come up with, David and Stotham. To God be glory. But come on, I've been in your houses, man. You guys know how to fancy it up. Do it for the house of God. What is that going to do with anything as long as the... Well, what is it going to do with, that, with your house either? You know, God is still there, right? So what am I saying? It changes. Why? We want to do the best that we have, we have to do for the Lord. Amen. These are maroon pews with wood on a bluish carpet with white walls. Okay. If that's the best we can do, I, I, like I say, David to Nustotram. I mean, to God be the glory. Except you're not in Kotam, you're in Richardson. Are you happy? I'm talking what I know because as an African, I've seen us do the same thing. I've been to African churches here in the States, and I would think that I was in a low density, in a high density suburb in Zimbabwe. I'm like, why are you guys rebuilding stuff? You got more stuff here. Do better. Uh, why? <laughs> because you can. And because you're constantly making changes, you're constantly making adjustments to make whatever you have for God the best you can possibly do. Come on, this is for God. It's not for us. So the question I have for you right now, if you knew the governor of this state was coming here in three weeks, would you make any changes in the building? What changes would they be? Give me an idea. If you knew for a fact the governor is coming, okay, let's not even talk about governor. You know the governor and the president were going to attend service at Zion in three weeks. What changes would you make? No, if you knew they were coming here, they decided we're going to Zion, you know, um, Air Force Two, the helicopter is going to be parked right in there because you've got all the acreage. What, how would you change and what, what changes would you bring about? Bathrooms, you do, pews, and then what? Paint the walls and what else? Because you know with the president, what, I like good interiors. The interiors are going to be perfect. Amen. Well, that's the way he talks. You know, it's, listen. So what, here's the thing, though. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords shows up every single Sunday. Not the governor of the state, not the president of the United States. The king that walks on, 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 on streets of gold in heaven. You invite him to show up every single weekend. So you won't make changes for him, right? But you'll make changes for, for the governor? Come on, folks. 
Here's what I usually say to churches. I want you to have, to, 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 whenever you focus on the property that you do have, I want you to maximize it so, that, so much so that if you knew that the governor of your state was coming, there's not a single thing you'll change. It's already ready to house high-level dignitaries. If you knew that, that there was a presidential summit that wanted to use your property, you wouldn't change a thing because everything's already in place to receive them. Because if you'll do that for earthly men, I do pray to God that you understand that you've got to do better for the Lord as well. So you always begin with that in mind. So when I was pastoring, and I'm about to end, I just want to show you the secret I had that ended up attracting the mayor of our town. The deputy mayor started coming to my church, him and his wife and his family. They started attending our church. Uh, it was a tiny little church pastored by a single African guy, and it was majority white, and I was in the whitest town, one of the whitest towns in, in, in Connecticut, called Putnam, Connecticut. If you saw another black person, I crossed the street to hug him. Just hug, you know. <laughs> Like, hey, man, if anything happens, we all we got. You know what I mean? So what? So the widest little town, but here's what happened. The deputy mayor started coming, and Mayor Rivero did it, because here's what I taught our people. And our people were blue-collar workers that worked in the mills. So they never had an understanding of aesthetics of the way that things look. We, I, I, the Lord taught me a secret. He says, what the people get used to seeing, bring it to such a high level of excellence, right? So that these individuals understand that if your local officials were ever to come into your church, you would not change a thing. So I made sure that the draperies matched. Everything was done right. It didn't look cheap. It didn't look a cheap version of, we didn't have much money. You guys have more money than we do because you got more professional than we had. We didn't, and not just that, but I was paying it. That rent was almost $4,000 a month for me to pay from that little group of blue-collar workers. But to, in order for us to be in that property, that's how much I was paying to be there. But we had that place looking pristine because we always aimed for the highest common denominator, meaning what? I want the, the, our, our city officials to be able to feel at home in my church. So guess who got sent to our church? The city officials. So then eventually in that tiny little church, I would look and I'll see that deputy mayor is right there. Whenever I had a need in my town, we could call the mayor's office and tell Mayor Rivero, I need a parking lot opened up because I want to do a kid's program in the center of town. Guess what the mayor would do? They'll open up a parking lot of public property and allow us to preach there and to do music there and to use city power and city everything all in a way because we established a relationship by what? We made sure that the house where we're in looked good enough to house our highest dignitaries without changing anything. And we're able to accomplish that with blue-collar workers that worked in mills that had never owned a new thing in their life. All the cars they'd ever driven were third-hand and fourth-hand. But all of a sudden, the Lord said, upgrade their thinking when it comes to the house of God. So you ask me, what is the most important ministry? You may not necessarily be preaching. It's the little things. Are we okay? The little things. The little things. The walk from the door into the sanctuary. Even right here, I almost tripped because there's a dip and I was not warned. So if you're not, if you don't, you're not aware of that, by that door there, if you're just walking, you kind of do one of those like the cartoons where, where there's supposed to be something. There's nothing. Have you ever take that, taken that awkward step like you're going down and you expect there to be a stair and there isn't one? That's what it felt like, the little things like that. If you can take care of this house and make sure that you got this house maximized, God has got no problem with either giving you another house right here or opening up the next place for you. Maximize the place that you have. Do it as a matter of what? As a matter of your contribution toward the house of God, investing in your younger generation to understand that aesthetics matter to God. Are we okay? So how many ministers do we have in this house? Every one of you. Because every one of you can enable another person to make this their home church or for them to walk away and never come back. And all of that can happen before present worship even begins.
That's what happens when we come to church tomorrow. You are aware. If you park a car and the person next to you, you've never seen them before, get out there, greet them, walk them in, show them where they can sit, tell them the order of service, introduce them to the leaders of the church, let them feel at home, let them know where the bathrooms are, and make the bathrooms look and smell nice. Are we okay? Why? Because that's what leaders do. That's real leadership. It's not having a position on the committee or sitting on the board. That's not leadership. That's just a function. Leadership is the little things that nobody has to push you to do, that you do because it's the right thing to do. For some of you who have been coming here for a long time now, but you still act like you're visitors. You still act like I'm visiting. The, you're not visiting the church. You've been here for three years. You're no longer a visitor. You were not a visitor after the fourth time you came here. You were family. So act like family. That means what? That means it's sort of just looking how, how, the, how are they treating me and my kids? No. Now, how are you treating others and others? Because you're already part of the family. Welcome others that are coming in. Make them feel at home. I shared this before and I'm about to be done after this, you know, meet later on today. The church I grew up in, I told you, was strong in the word, strong in worship, strong in prayer. Bishop Tudor Bismarck is not even a preacher first. He's an intercessor first. So what he taught us was how to fast and pray. We would fast and pray for days and days and days. You know, all night prayer meetings were nothing when I was growing up. Right? We did that constantly. So my job moved me from the capital where I loved my church. My goodness. Whenever pastor would preach, I, there was, you know, I, for years, I never heard him repeat a sermon. For years, the service never ended without people complaining that the service was over. Whenever I used to say, last point, everybody used to go, ah. Oh. Like, come on, can't you preach a little bit more? That's the level of preaching I was under. My job moved me to a little town called Chirezi in the southeast section of Zimbabwe. And I walked into one of the most boring church services I'd been in a while. Not only was it boring, but the worship team was so bad. The worst than you guys were back in the day before, you know, when you, when you, when you guys didn't used to, when, when anything went, right? Tambourines, guitar, drums, everything. Back in those days. I know what I'm talking about. I was here. Let me tell you this. It was worse than that. But, you know, so I sat during praise and worship. And I looked at the drummer, and my eyes were like, bro, if you cannot keep a beat, what are you doing on stage? Because he was playing something. <laughs> no, he was enthusiastically playing something. It's just not what everyone else was playing. So he's out there, and he's rolling, and I'm like, it's good. I sat there, God is my witness. And I said, thank you, Jesus, for this opportunity. I know I will not come back here. I can handle a lot, but I can't handle this. Watch this. So as soon as service was over, you know when you're praying in the Lord, please let this end. Let this torture end right now. Jesus ended. Fix it, fix it, fix it. So anyway, service is over. And I got up and I took my stuff to walk out of the church and never came back, to never come back. And as I'm walking out, I get a pat on the shoulder and I look and it's this gentleman and his wife. Chris and Sandy McClary. They say, hey man, we've never seen you here before. What's your name? I said, my name is Felix. He says, what are you doing in our church, in our town? I said, I'm from the capital city. I'm from Harare, and my job moved me here recently. Oh, you moved into town? Do you have any friends? Do you have anybody in town? No, it's just me. He says, okay, okay, welcome to our church, you know. And do you know who that guy was, that, that Chris guy? The drummer. The very guy I was trying not to come back to that church for. He's the one who came to greet me, him and his wife. Beautiful couple, wonderful couple. They said, what are you doing for lunch? I said, I have no plan. He says, and you've got no family. He says, you come and you have lunch with us. 
That was it. Three years later, I was the assistant pastor of that church. They got me out of the circular into the, my first full-time ministry job. I was hired by that church. The question is, what were you doing in that church where there's a drama that cannot hold a beat? How did you end up staying for three years there? Because before I left that building, a couple walked up to me and they connected with me. Said, they asked my story. Where are you from? What brings you to town? And when they found out who I was, they didn't judge. They didn't even know I was as skilled as I was in the things I was skilled at. They just said, come on and, you know, you're part of us. They said, where do you live? At that time, I wasn't even living in town. I was living 25 kilometers away in a little town called Triangle, which was, you know, so they said, you know what? We have a home group in Triangle. Let me, let me, give me your number and I'll connect you with my folks from there. Guess what? The owners, of the, the guys that ran the home group in Triangle gave me a call. Hey, Felix, we got your name from Chris and Sandy McCleary. They told us you're new in town. We meet every Tuesday. You want to come over? Come early and have dinner with us. Went and had dinner with them. Three years later, I was a pastor in that church. Because of the preaching? No. Because of the praise and worship? Oh, heck no. <laughs> because of what? Because somebody just connected with me and they loved on me before they knew that I was a drummer in my old church. And not only could I take over the drums there, but I could train the drummers. Not knowing I could play three different instruments. They loved on me before they knew the skill I brought. I ended up doing all of that plus for the church. I worked as the children's minister. I became their youth minister, and I was the senior associate minister in that church. I did a lot of wonderful things for them. I almost took all my ability and my years of training away with me until somebody connected with me and loved on me. How many skilled people come to our church every Sunday and they leave without everybody, anybody ever talking to them? Was Chris the pastor? No, he was just a drummer that couldn't keep a beat. What about the pastor? Pastor Jeff Rogers, I only met him weeks after. But it was just, did Chris do that because he thought he was a leader in the church? No, he just saw a new face and he loved on a guy. He was a white dude. I'm a black, I, 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 I'm a black guy in a church where racial tensions were still high in my country. They showed me love and respect. I stayed in that church and I brought all my skills to benefit that house because of one person reaching out to me in love. So the question I have is this. If the church is not growing, I'm not looking at the pulpit. Wonderful word comes from here. I'm looking at the pew. And I'm asking myself, are you guys hospitable? Are you? Are you aware of strangers? Is it possible for somebody to be in this church for a year and never really connect to anybody? Is it possible for a young person to come to this church and sit there and never have his own generation or her own generation reach out to her and make a part of the clique? Completely act like you don't even... If that's possible, you all need to change that. You gotta love people because you don't know the skills that people bring. You look at them and they'll look average to you, but that's what David looked like to Israel. He looked average. But what Israel did not know is that that boy knew how to handle a sling. They didn't know that that boy knew how to handle a harp. He could cast out demons by playing a guitar. But it takes the receiving of those gifts and finding a place for them in order for the house to grow. Are we good? Have we said enough for one morning? Yep. Dude, seriously? <laughs> so here's my encouragement. And I'll end with this. Who are the leaders in this church? It's all of you that showed up on Saturday morning. Do you need a position to exercise leadership authority? No? What is real leadership? It's not having a position or having a say or having a voice. It's taking care of the little things. Sometimes nobody will notice. You understand?
Sometimes you will never get thanked for it. You'll never get applauded for it. Because you don't, good leaders don't even bring attention to it. They don't even say, oh, do you know, Pastor, I did this. They don't even talk about it. Do you know that when David saved the lion and the bear, he told nobody. The only reason why he ever repeated it was Saul was doubting his ability to take care of Goliath. And for the first time in his life, David says, oh, by the way, sir, yeah, I've already had an incident with something bigger than me. Really? Yeah, I took out a lion and a bear. Why are you telling me this? Only because I want you to let you know I can handle this guy. Otherwise, I would have taken him to the grave with me. Nobody would have known I've already done it. So he didn't do that to beat himself on the, on the breast. The leaders do things in silence. The Lord said, be light and be salt. Do you know what light and salt have in common? They don't make a noise when they're making effect. Have you ever heard salt go, I'm about to flavor this part? No. It's very quiet. It just brings flavor. Amen. What does light do? It banishes darkness in silence. It's the quiet little things that are the true mark of leadership. Because it's got less to do with your ability. It's got everything to do with your heart. I want to pray for you. But before I do, if you're in your heart that says, Felix, I want to have a more hospitable spirit. I want to become more aware of people around me. It's just not my natural gifting, but I desire it. Be honest. I was like that. Okay? I'll be the first one to raise my hand. If that's you and you say, in my heart, I want to be more hospitable. I want to be an instrument by which others can be plugged into the house of God. Lift up your hands. I want to pray for you, wherever you are. That's everyone in here. Thank you. There's an anointing for this. Amen. It just opens up your eyes to the needs of others. Let me pray for you. Father, right now, in the name of Jesus. Pastor Justin, let's say everybody. Father, in the name of Jesus, I just lift up my friends and my family here. And I'm asking, my Father, that you may call each one to become aware. Because you're about to send people that are loaded with gifts and loaded with abilities. But it's going to take the church treating them well in order for them to stay. So make each one that is here right now a leader in this. Make us people that are hospitable. Make us people that love on people. Make us people that are welcoming to others. Make us people that will love on people as they come in. Father, I pray that we may be that church. Father, today we understand that it's not just about these things, it's about the heart with which we do it. And Father, I pray right now, my God, that we want this to be a church where the chief of police in Richardson will attend church here. He'll bring his family here. He'll bring his kids here. Father, that our local you know, councilmen and our elder men, Father, in City Hall, Father, will bring, the, will, this will be their home church where they come to be raised up in the things of God. I pray, Father, that you may bring in even the local principals of the schools and some of the teachers in our schools. This will be the place where they'll be taught how to be men and women of God. So, Father, I pray that you may help my, this body here to, for, to maximize this spot where they have, to make it the best that it can be. Because in my heart, I know you're going to give them something bigger and better, my Father. But I thank you for maximizing what they do have right now. I pray that, my God, th this church may be a standard bearer. Father, for other churches in the area, other Malayali churches in the area, that this is how ministry is done. This is the, how the house of God is conducted. So that the people that walk in here will be loved. They'll be loved. They'll be cherished. Their gifts will be established. Their children will be raised in the admonition of the Lord. I thank you for accomplishing it, for doing it for your name's sake. We dedicate this church, its staff. We dedicate every functioning member of this body to you and for the work of the kingdom. For we ask all this in the name of Jesus and we all say, Amen. That means our ministry starts tonight. Amen. Okay? Tonight when we come in and when you come in early, please be aware of those that are here that you've never noticed before. Love on them and make them feel welcome. Don't always hang out with your buddies. Be aware of somebody that may be disconnected. May it never be said of anybody that goes to this church that they are unable to make friends. May it never be said about Zion Church. 
because somebody in Zion is going to reach out and love on them. Amen. God bless you.